Thank you, Tommy. And I enjoyed all the kids singing. And in case you were wondering, uh, I sat on the front row with Pam and Denise, and they sounded pretty good too. So, uh, so worked out good. We're in First Kings chapter eleven. Last time I was with you in this chapter, we actually looked at the first eight verses of the chapter. And this morning, the intent is to, to cover verses 9 through 25, pretty lengthy section. But a lot of the narrative is actually dominated by a, a biographical accounting of one of the enemies or the adversaries that God raised up against uh, Solomon. So we'll look at that uh, in a bit. I want to read just verses 9 through 13 first, and we'll pick up as we move through the text this morning. Because this is after it was disclosed to us in chapter 11, Solomon's problem, the problem of the fact that his heart has been turned away. We looked at this at length last time with respect to his polygamous marriages, his idolatry, all the things that eventually, all of these just these small acts over the accumulation of his life that ultimately turned his heart away from the Lord. And in verse 9 of chapter 11, the Bible says to us that the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. And so the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of of the hand of your son. And however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So, Father, as we examine your word this morning, give us grace to understand, grace to hear. But, Lord, I pray that your word would not sit idle this morning, but, Lord, it would provoke our hearts to repentance, and, God, we would walk faithfully and live faithfully before you. Thank you for the grace of God revealed through Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. In Sunday school this morning, we were kind of joking around about the, uh, I didn't even know how the, the, the topic came up, but we got on the topic of a little bit of talking about church signs, you know? And look, I am thankful for the freedom of religion, but I think it is an, ab- I think all churches should be banned from having signs and the privilege of being able to put, you know, slogans out there on the street for people to read. Now, I'm grateful that we have one out here, and the only thing we put on there is Bible verses. Thank you, Randall. But let's admit it. You ever just hang your head in embarrassment sometimes and you pass by some of these signs on the road? It's like, no wonder people make fun of Christians, you know? Um, I, I, you know, I, I mean, there are, I, one that we talked about in Sunday school this morning was one that read, uh, tweet others as you want to be tweeted. I mean, really? I mean, really? Uh, this is one that I really despise, too. To prevent sin burn, use sunscreen, S-O-N. Oh, please, you know. Oh, boy, that's just embarrassing, you know. Oh, boy. I did like this one. Have trouble sleeping? Try one of our sermons. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. So maybe some of you are here for therapy this morning. I don't know. Um, I didn't quite understand this one, but thought it was interesting. Church parking only. Violators will be baptized. Anyway, um, so um, I like this one too. Stop, drop, and roll does not work in hell. So that's a good one to know. And uh, God wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. How about that? There's plenty of those going around there. So, you know, it's embarrassing in, in many ways, um, and, and we laugh at those. But, you know, church signs can also be dangerous for another reason, because we sometimes can try to take, ma- uh, you know, important theological truths or attributes even about God, such as God's love, and try to fit something as massive, wonderful, complex and beautiful as an attribute of God, like the love of God, and we try to fit that on a church sign. And unfortunately, what happens is we can confuse the message to the broader culture. 
Signs like, God loves you, no exceptions, by the way, which is on a sign in a church here in Valdosta right now. And when people see that, God loves you no matter what, no exceptions. It's one thing for the church who understands the broader message of the Bible that God's love is unconditional. But to someone who doesn't have a proper knowledge or understanding of the Bible, they can actually take that to mean something completely different. Another sign that I saw says, God loves everything about you. Another one says, God loves you just like you are. You get the picture. Indeed, God loves his creation. Indeed, God loves his creatures. I mean, even Jesus talks about the fact that God lets the rain fall and the sun shine on both the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, all of us, every human being that has ever lived has experienced and does experience some measure of God's loving providential care. Absolutely. The problem is that in our culture, we've adopted an alternative understanding to God's love that is really based on some cheesy church slogan theology. We are surrounded with the message that God loves you and is, loves you to the point where it means that God's love is a non-threatening, all-accepting, non-condemning grandpa who conveniently demands nothing out of us. Maybe the only thing that in our broader culture that God's love means is that the only thing that maybe God demands out of us is that for we are to be happy. See, the love of God is under massive distortion in our culture because ultimately God's character is being completely ripped out of the full presentation of the attributes of God given to us in the Bible. You can't pick just one verse, God is love, and then isolate that from all the rest of the biblical canon. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and sentimentalized in our culture. The idea of God's love in our society is basically to remove any idea or anything from God that we find uncomfortable. This is what's happened. It's not surprising Because basically our whole society judges everything by sentimentality. Feelings and emotions are determiners for finding truth, not truth itself, right? All you need is love. So I think I've heard that somewhere before. But yeah, I mean, this is the, the culture that we live in. Everything's based on sentiment. Everything's based upon, as Leonard Skinner said in the song, Simple Man, follow your heart and nothing else, Right? The problem with church slogan theology is it presents a distorted view of God, a distorted view of God's attributes. It's independent of the attributes, separated from the other ones that that the Bible clearly presents as well. You can't talk about God's love apart from God's holiness. You can't talk about God's love apart from his righteousness. You can't talk about his love apart from his justice. You can't talk about his love apart from other attributes like his unchangeableness. All the attributes of God must be held together. And I can promise you if you don't understand the love, if you don't understand the justice and the wrath of God, you will never appreciate the love of God. He said, well, what's the point here? Because when you open up the book here to chapter 11, verse 9 of 1 Kings, the first thing we read here is that God was angry with Solomon. It's the first thing, and believe it or not, this is an attribute of God. And for many people, God being angry with Solomon, for some of us, we might find that very uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, the idea that God would be angry with anybody because so many of us have been, you know, we have a Marcion understanding of the Bible. Marcion was an early church heretic who basically taught that the God of the New Testament was different than the God of the Old Testament. And we had that kind of Marcion understanding. You know, you can kind of hear it in the broader culture. You know, well, you know, the Old Testament, God just seems mean, you know? He's just wrathful and vengeful and mean, you know, and all of a sudden it's like, you know, and then God just seemed to kind of mellow out by the time we got to the New Testament. You know, this is kind of the, our broader cultural understanding of the Bible and the presentation of God, which is completely not true. 
We talked about the Davidic covenant in Sunday school this morning. I mean, the, the, that covenant, by the way, was given in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel. And it was all part of the grandeur plan of God's redemption of humanity, all set in stone beginning in Genesis 3. That despite the failure of humanity and our utter rebellion, God has been at work since Genesis chapter 3 on a rescue mission for us to redeem for his people to redeem for himself a people saved by his grace and for his glory. When we look at the whole presentation of God in the Bible, you can't just focus on one attribute. Because the Bible doesn't focus on one attribute. God's love is set in context of his holiness, his mercy, his justice, which helps us to understand his anger. We cannot be selective in how, you know, in our view of God, because the Bible is not selective. All of his works, all of his attributes have to be held together in balance and consistent with the biblical presentation of God. It's very important. And so when the text says here that God was angry, you have to ask yourself, well, why? Well, there's actually, in verses 9 and 10, we're given three reasons for why the God, that God was angry with Solomon. The first one was that his heart was turned away. The second one that was given to us is because the Lord appeared to him twice. And the third reason why God was angry with him was because of idolatry. All these things given in verses 9 through 10. You know, to the first point on Solomon's heart being turned away, we looked at that when we worked through... Um, I you love it when you get text messages from guys who live in Arizona. It was like, bro, we're worshiping. You know, now you're interrupting my sermon. What in the world? Anyway, great brother in the Lord. I love him. But anyway, I just want to make sure that one of y'all weren't texting me going, dude, you're way too loud. Yeah. So anyway. But in verses 1 through 8, we looked at that last time and see, and we saw how, you know, Solomon's entire life was one of one compromising decision after another. Because that's one of the things that can be misleading when you get to chapter 11. You can look at chapter 11, and all of a sudden it seems like Solomon got to the end of his life and had to turn. And that's not the issue. The issue is that we have seen since chapter 3, verse 1, when Solomon took a marriage with Pharaoh's daughter, and when he uh, had a, uh, places on uh, the high places for worship, and these types of things, we can read very early on just decision after decision after decision that Solomon made that were subtle compromises that when eventually they just accumulated together, it, it led to the point where he turned away. It was a series of subtle decisions that were made throughout the storyboard of his life. And ultimately, Solomon knew better. Solomon knew God's prohibition against idols. Solomon knew the prohibitions with marrying foreign women. Solomon knew these things, and yet we find him creating shrines and temple places to alternative gods. Tragic. Idols. Idols are the work of our corrupt imaginations. Even my point about distorting the love of God is a form of idolatry. We have to understand that. Because you may remember that, you know, when you examine things like the Ten Commandments, you know, the first one is to have no other gods before him, but, but, but before God, but also not to create or to make any kind of image construct of an idol, to create any graven images, right? Because ultimately, idols are the creation of our corrupt, fallen, sinful imaginations. And when we isolate the love of God apart from all the other attributes of God, we are creating a different God, a God that is appealing and appetizing to us that we find is non-threatening to our personal choices. Yes, God was angry, but God's angry with Solomon was not an irrational emotion. God doesn't get angry like we do. Aren't you glad for that? Yeah, I thought somebody, amen, that one. I am, one thing I can say I'm thankful for is that God does not act like me. And that God is distinct from his creatures. 
God's anger over Solomon was because of his deliberate rejection of him, his deliberate rejection of his commands, and the deliberate rejection of God, the grace that God gave to Solomon, his blessings, and everything that the Lord had warned him about. You see, what we understand about kingship, and we talked about this in Sunday school some, is that kingship is ultimately a representative kingship. Just as Adam and Eve were called to represent God's rule, so David and every king after him were called to be representative rulers on behalf of God. Their kingship was to reflect God's kingship within the covenant community. And so the problem here is that all of a sudden, if Solomon now is chasing idols, he has failed to represent God. And God consequently is just and right to be angry with Solomon. Because God is filled with jealousy over his covenant community, much like a righteous husband jealously loves his wife. God so loves his his covenant community. And because the problem with Solomon is that it wasn't a sin that just that Solomon committed unto himself, but Solomon's actions of building shrines and temple places for worship ushered the entire nation into idolatrous practices. And by the way, sin is rarely an isolated incident. Every time you sin, you're typically impacting somebody else or taking somebody else down with you. So don't be fooled by the devil's lie that I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, you are. Your sin hurts somebody, trust me. You know what's interesting, though, is that this anger, we have to be careful here because when we talk about the anger of God, God is not hot-headed, so to speak. God is not temperamental. God's anger is over the rejection of sin and his revulsion of evil. Solomon Solomon spurned God, and Solomon dishonored the throne of Jerusalem, and he disgraced the entire household of David. But what's most shocking about this, too, is the fact that we read that one of the reasons why God was angry with Solomon is because he appeared to him twice. Did you notice that in the text? God appeared to him twice. You know, the first time was in chapter 3, verse 5, when Solomon was worshiping in Gibeon, and God met with him there. But the other times, too, was in chapter 9, right after the temple dedication in chapter 8. The Lord appeared to him, and in fact, one of the things that God said to him in chapter 9 at the second appearing is very pertinent to our text this morning. God says in 1 Kings 9, 4, as for you, notice these words, if and then. When you see if and then, We know we have conditional statements. If you do this, then this is the result, right? If you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel That, of course, coming from 2 Samuel chapter 7. God says, but if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I've set before you, and you go and you serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name, and I I will cast out of my sight. And so Israel will become a proverb, a byword, a byword among all the peoples. In other words, the whole city, the whole temple, and the whole people would suffer reputational ruin. You see, this passage makes complete sense because if you understand that just as Solomon or just as the kings of Israel were to be representative rulers on behalf of God, so according to Exodus chapter 19, Israel was to be a representative priesthood on behalf of God. Remember Exodus chapter 19, God called Israel a kingdom of priests. They were to bear witness to God and his attributes before the entire world. By the way, so are we. We're a kingdom of priests. We're to represent God before the nations, which is why Christian conduct is so important. The Lord is holy. And the Lord is without sin. 
God is uncreated. God exists eternally. God is not dependent on any creature, and he will not tolerate anyone misrepresenting him, especially those who are called his people. Every time we see the Lord punishing Israel, it's because their corrupt lives and idolatry smear the name of God instead of glorifying it. You see, Solomon is without excuse because Solomon received incredible grace and incredible privilege. Solomon is the son of David, which means Solomon had the example of his father's faith. He had the promise that was given to David that his sons would rule over the covenant community. And yes, look, I understand that David sinned. I get that. But David also repented. You have David who's writing in Psalm 51 begging for forgiveness and cleansing, saying, your loving kind, saying, being gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever, and my sin is ever before me. David, yes, sinned massively. But we don't have a prayer like that from Solomon. Solomon had the word of God that was given to Moses. Solomon saw the temple presence, the Shekinah glory of God that filled the temple after the dedication ceremony. Solomon was given incredible wisdom and discernment as an answer to prayer. And Solomon had the rare privilege of the Lord himself appearing to him twice. You know, it's rare for the Lord to appear to anyone, let alone to do it twice. But you know, when we read that, here's where I want to caution you, because let me tell you, that should give us incredible concern. Hearing that and understanding that God appeared to Solomon twice, and yet he still did all that should give us great pause and concern about ourselves. How blessed are we? You know what? Solomon, the Lord appeared to him twice, but you know what? We have the scriptures, we have God's revelation, and by the way, we have the Son of God incarnate who walked among the earth. We have the witness of the, of, the, of the law, the prophets, the writings, the apostles. We have all of these things. So many of us are blessed with even godly influences, maybe from parents, neighbors, friends, people in this church. We are surrounded by the blessing of God of being able to know who he is. Solomon was no better off than we are. There are great legacies of faith that even are in this congregation. And how many of us have heard and received warnings over the consequences of, re of, the re of rebellion and sin and knowing that the price of sin is very costly? The truth is that Solomon was no more privileged than we are. We are a privileged people. God has blessed us with his word. He's blessed us with an abundance of examples and teachings of what authentic faith in Christ looks like. But let me ask you a question. When you hear of someone who fails, let's say if anyone who has a massive or a major moral failure in their life, I mean, whether it's adultery or whether it's a financial scam or whether it's substance abuse or whatever the case may be, how often do we first say, how could they do that? Come on. I know I'm not the only one, right? Yeah, it's true. How could they do that? You know, I catch myself sometimes. I, I read about pastors or teachers or professors or others who are laboring in the Word of God and teaching the Word of God, and all of a sudden there's a moral failure in their life, and all of a sudden my first reaction is I'm tempted to go, how could they do that while being such good students of the Word of God? You know, and we could even ask the same thing about Solomon. How could he do this when the Lord has revealed himself to, you know, to him twice? Not only that, but Solomon wrote Proverbs. He wrote Scripture. We have things in the Bible by him that are from the wisdom of God. And you look at that and you go, you marvel at that and go, how? You know, the, the problem is, is that the reason why sometimes our first reaction 
is to think, how could they do something like that? Is because, you know, we often think that we're stronger than we really are. That's the part of the deception. Why do you think the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall? We need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit that apart from God's grace, we, every single one of us, are capable of the same failures. Let me say this, especially for those of you, like my kids, other children that are sitting in here, let me tell you something. Your parents may have faith, but it does not guarantee yours. Your faith must be your own. And you have to understand that the greater, witnesses that the greater witness that you have of God's redeeming grace and his transforming power, because there's no greater demonstration of God's power than a person's life who has been completely transformed by the grace of God, watching a sinner who loves the things of this world and turning around and pursuing Christ. That's demonstration of the power of God, new creation life. And children and others who are in this room, if you witness that with your parents, you witness that with others, just because your parents may have new life in Christ doesn't guarantee it goes to you. Your faith in Christ must be your own. But you are surrounded and privileged with the witness of grace, just as Solomon was. And it is you to be responsible for that. You know, all humanity has a common problem. And the problem is that we underestimate the power of sin. We read something like this in this text where God appeared to Solomon twice and we're shocked that his heart could be led away like this and, it was, and tempted to think, how could he do something like that? But it's because we underestimate the power of sin. We underestimate the power of unbelief. It doesn't matter how many times God appears. It doesn't matter how many times God speaks. It doesn't matter how clear the Bible is. It doesn't matter how many miracles are done. Unbelief is not the absence of something. Unbelief is a real substance that lives inside the human heart. Fact is that we prefer our selfish indulgences over the love of God and the truth of God. And unless the Lord Jesus comes through with his spirit and makes a, and smashes your heart with his sledgehammer of grace, every single one of us will pursue sin and reject God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says it best, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, It's not about whether God gives convincing proofs. It's not about how many prayers God answers. It's not about how many, how many different translations of the Bible exist. The reality is God could do miracle after miracle, answer prayer after prayer. God could do so many things, but unless the heart is transformed by the Spirit of God, you will always choose your affections, your desires over the will of God. We need to keep seeking Christ, keep pressing ahead, always being alert because we have an enemy who's always ready to attack us. We need to be saved not only by God's grace, but we've got to be kept by his grace too. For us who are Christians, we daily need that sustaining grace to live faithfully each day. And the example of Solomon and many other, others are there as a warning sign to us not to make the same mistake. But I also want to mention something else here in that not only was the Lord angry, but the Lord was just. His anger was matched by his justice. You saw that in verse 11. In verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 11 here, the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. It's kind of a reversal of what happened to Saul, was it not? The kingdom of God was torn from Saul and given to David, and now a reversal is taking place where the kingdom is being torn from David's son and given to a servant. Now, of course, 
not in its entirety. And of course, the servant that he's talking about here is Jeroboam, and we're not going to examine Jeroboam today. It's, we don't have enough time, but we'll speak about him next time. But what the Lord does here is he begins to undo the unified Israelite nation that was once under the King David and under Solomon himself. And that's important. It's important to understand that he is tearing this away, but not only is he tearing the kingdom away and only leaving him with a small portion of it, but we read in verses 14 through 25 that God raises up two adversaries. Notice I said God raises up two adversaries. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the Lord raises up two guys, okay? The first one in verse 14, Hadad, the Edomite, and then Rezin, who was the son of Elida, who was actually a Syrian. You see that in verse 23. Just so that way we don't run out of time, let me just go ahead and read those passages so we understand. Because we, we have to understand that there's really two acts of God's justice that he does here. The first one is that he does promise the tearing away of the kingdom from Solomon. The second one is that he actually raises up adversaries uh, against Solomon. So verse 14 says, The Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, he was of the royal line in Edom. And it came about when David was in Edom, Joab, the commander of the army, had gone, to, uh, had gone up to bury the slain and had struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel stayed there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. But that Hadad, he fled to Egypt. So actually there were some that ended up escaping and he and certain Edomites of his father's servants went with him. And while Hadad was a young boy, they arose from Midian, came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt. Paran was actually an area that uh, you may recall from Jacob's days as well. And they arose in verse 18, came to Paran, took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him food and gave him land. And Ahadad found great favor before Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh gave him in marriage to his, to his sister's wife, married his sister-in-law, and the sister of Tophanes, the queen, and the sister of Tophanes bore his son, Gunaboth, I guess, whatever. Anyway, not, not much into Egyptian names, but anyway, whom Tophanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Gunaboth was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. And when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers, that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead. Hadad said to Pharaoh, send me away that I can go to my own country. And then Pharaoh said to him, well, what have you lacked with me that you want to go and seek after your own country? He said, nothing. Nevertheless, let me go. And that's it. That's all we know about Hadad. So what's important about Hadad here that we have to understand? Well, you kind of, in many ways, see Hadad here as being a sort of the, a, an anti-Moses here. Guy who was sent to Egypt and comes back, but not for the purpose of redemption, right? And then another one here is in verse 23. God also raised up another adversary to him, Rezin, the son of Elida, who had fled from the, from the Lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. He gathered men to himself, became a leader of a marauding band. And after David slew them, they went to Damascus and stayed there and reigned in Damascus. And so he was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon, along with the evil that Hadad did, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Aram. Aram is another name for the country of Syria. We'll come back to that in just a second. I want to just focus on verse 11 for just a moment. One of the things that we understand in this is that God is disrupting the days of peace that Solomon enjoyed. You've got to understand the significance of that because Solomon's name means peace. Shalmo. You think of the word shalom, right? The word Solomon comes from that. It means peace. One of the reasons why, actually, I'm sorry, the only reason why that Solomon enjoyed peace during his reign was because of God's grace. You understand that? The only reason why there was peace and there wasn't constant warfare, the only reason why there, wasn't pe there weren't people attacking the borders of Israel is because God is the one who protected the country and gave it a period of peace. And so the very peace that Solomon enjoyed was a gift from the Lord. And so the peace that Solomon enjoyed and that Israel enjoyed would only continue provided that they remained faithful with the Lord. And all of a sudden when there was rebellion, when there is idolatry, when the name of God is dishonored, 
God removes that protection of peace over the nation. Because the only reason there was peace at all was because of God's grace. You see, rather than, rather than being surprised by God's anger, we should be probably more surprised over his patience. God is very patient, but being patient means, it doesn't mean that God overlooks sin. I think it's one of the reasons why having a correct understanding of the love of God is so important. You know, one of the most powerful passages in all the Bible is in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And the reason why it's powerful is because it is a detail of so, it, 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 it provides for us so many of the attributes of God. And that same passage is repeated over and over and over in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's right after the golden calf incident, and the Lord tells Moses that the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But look at there, here's the balance. But yet by no means will leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. You know, in that passage, you read here about a God is gracious, slow to anger. He's full of hesed or, you know, this covenant-keeping love and truth. And you read that, and everybody wants to stop there. But the balance of that is verse 7, that God also does not leave the guilty unpunished. There is balance here, that God is both merciful as well as being just. He is not temperamental. God, is, God cannot... You know, he's not going to be hot-headed, as I spoke about earlier, but God is also not going to be capricious in his judgment. He's not going to become angry in an emotional way, but God is also not going to just overlook sin because it would be dishonoring to his own character. In fact, it would be an assault on his holy character. By the time that we read that Solomon stirred up the anger of God, you have to understand that to get to that point means that Solomon, you, you get the sense of the, the, of the gravity of Solomon's sin. Listen, I, I think in talking about the love of God and these things, the one thing we have to understand is that God's anger is never unjust. In fact, in Romans 9, 14, Paul says, is there any injustice with God? He says, absolutely not. <laughs> God is never unjust. Listen, that's so important. We're so quick to abuse teachings that the Bible gives about the Lord that we have to be careful. Listen, in our world, we are used to corruption. We're used to corrupt people. We're used to corrupt judges. We're used to corrupt governments. We're used to corrupt politicians, corrupt businessmen. For crying out loud, we're used to corrupt charities. There's corruption all around us. But the one thing that we can be sure of, there is no corruption and there is no injustice in God. That where God is angry, that where God is wrathful, and where God meets out judgment, he is completely holy and right to do so. But God also demands holiness from his creatures. And any creature or any person who is unholy cannot be in his presence and that's why hell does exist. Because hell is the place of everlasting banishment to affliction and to suffering away from the presence of God because of his holiness. God is not unjust. In fact, that's actually because he is just. God says in Ezekiel 18, for all souls are mine, the soul of the Father, the soul of the Son, the soul that sins will surely die. All souls, every person is accountable before God. Death is the consequence to sin. Not just physical death, but spiritual death too, because we were created body and soul. You see, our society rejects that kind of accountability. No one's going to tell me what to do. That's not the God that I worship. The God that I worship is like an easy grandpa, right? accommodates my sin, loves me just like I am. The problem is the Lord does love you enough that he gave you that, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We live in a world that rejects any notion of God outside of what we find comfortable and self-serving. And someone can delude themselves thinking that they're not accountable to God, but that is deception and a mistake. God's patience with us should not be mistaken with tolerance. You hear that was said? His patience with us should not be mistaken as tolerance. God's goodness and patience is for us to find time for repentance. Listen, this is the reason why we've got to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel. We've got to make sure people understand passages like Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your sin demands death. But God provides mercy and justice in the cross of Christ. You know, it's no accident to us that that cross is an intersection. Because that cross represents the fact that God, yes, he is love. Yes, he is merciful, but he is just. That cross demonstrates and displays the righteousness of God. Because everyone who trusts in Christ, the wrath of God, the anger of God that you and I deserve, he poured it out on his son. That's why... You have heard, some of you have heard people say, how must you be, you know, how can I be saved? Or are you saved? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. Your salvation is not so you can have some psychotherapeutic transformation and breakthrough. Your salvation is to spare you from the wrath of God that is justly deserved because of your sin. And you could have it either one of two ways. Poured out, on the ra- poured out on the cross of Christ or poured out on yourself in everlasting banishment from God in hell. There is no other alternatives. Let, let me move to the final point here. Let me just mention here that the last thing here is that the Lord was very Gracious. We'll come back and we'll just I'll, I'll quickly touch on the two adversaries that God mentioned. But I, I want to point out to you that the Lord was very gracious to Solomon. First of all, the Lord promises he's going to tear the kingdom away. But you also notice something too, right? But God says, but I'm not going to do it in your lifetime. <laughs> and I'm also not going to tear it away in its entirety. I'm going to leave you one tribe. That's very interesting. And why that's so important is because of the promise that was made in 2 Samuel 7. God promised to David that there would be someone on the throne to rule over God's covenant community from the line of David. Which is the reason why Matthew's gospel is so important that he opens up with saying, this is the book of the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, Son of Abraham, talked about that in Sunday school, that Matthew doesn't have his chronology confused. He just knows it's most important that we mention that Jesus came from the line of David to honor the presence, to honor the covenant that God made. So God is offering grace here to Solomon. He's offering him grace because, first of all, the Lord is going to tear away the kingdom, but he's not going to tear away all of it. And also that the Lord is going to leave at least one tribe, the tribe of Judah, to David's descendants here. But I also want to mention this to you. We talked about the adversaries. We talked about Rezon and Hadad, the Edomite. I'm going to submit to you as well that God raising up those adversaries was also an act of God's grace. And the reason I say that is because when you read 2 Samuel, let me just read this portion to you. In 2 Samuel 7, this is what God said to David in verses 14 through 16. He says about his son, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me, and when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed him from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. You see there? So by the fact that God would raise up these adversaries as a way also of God doing exactly what he said to David that he would do, that he would correct him with the rod and the disciplines of men. 
We should see God's raising up of adversaries as both his justice as well as his grace. And it's merciful. He raises up Hadad the Edomite, which is like a reverse Moses here. I mean, this is a guy that David, Solomon's father, he conquered the Edomites. There was only a small handful of them that left. They fled to Egypt. He was raised in Pharaoh's household, married to Pharaoh's sister-in-law, enjoyed a lot like Moses, enjoyed all the privileges and benefits of living in the land of Egypt. But Hadad had something else about him too. He had a nagging grudge that one day he was going to get back at the household of David for the slaughtering of his people. And God raised up Hadad, who was willing to shuck everything that he had in Egypt just to make sure he could get back and take vengeance on the house of David. Also, Rezin of Syria, the same thing. Syria from this day forward, when Rezin became the king of Syria or Aram, the relationship between Israel and Syria was over from that day forward. In fact, it's still a problem today. But God used these adversaries as a way to punish Solomon to help him understand the only reason you ever enjoyed peace in your life, Solomon, and in your reign was because of my grace. Solomon only had peace because of the work of God and then what he did. So even God's raising up of adversaries was for the purpose of what God promised to his father David. I'll correct him. God's going to use these adversaries as a way to remind Solomon of what life is like apart from God. It's chaos. It's harsh. Apart from God, there is no peace. This is why we live in a world that is enslaved to sin, a world that is enslaved to substance abuse, a world that's enslaved to pornography, a world that's enslaved to sexual exploits, a world that's enslaved to work, consumption, greed, all these things, because there's got to be something to numb the pain of trying to live life apart from the peace that only God can give. But I want to close with this. I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want us to be reminded that, you know, just as God raised up adversaries to help bring Solomon to his senses, you know, the Lord corrects those who are his children too. Now, many of you in this congregation are very familiar with this passage, but I think it's a good reminder for us as well that as children of God, we experience the kindness of his grace, but, you know, we also experience the kindness of God's correction. The kindness that God has, that he doesn't just reject us. You see, this is why I said to you, aren't you glad God doesn't act like us? Because if we lose our patience with people, it's so tempting to write them off. But if we are in Christ, God doesn't write us off. He corrects us lovingly. Sometimes it's harsh. Sometimes the affliction is very painful. But God uses these things as a means to call us back to him. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. <laughs> and he scourges those, everyone, every son whom he receives. How many of you love getting whippings by your parents when you were growing up? Yeah, I didn't think I'd get a hand on that one, right? Nobody enjoys it. Nobody enjoys discipline. But look in verse 7, Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with his sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. You hear that? If God doesn't deal with you in your sin, if he doesn't make life harder for you or bring affliction in your life, if he doesn't do those things, it's because you don't belong to him. But God is using those things. I mean, life, the Christian life is learned so good in the fires of affliction. 
Some of the greatest writings the church possesses today were from men and women of God who are in prison and in times of affliction. And some of the greatest theology that you ever learned in your life was in the darkest moments of your life when you realized you needed God more than anything else. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For, because they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Do you hear that? God disciplines us so we can be holy like him. We can share in his character. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, yeah, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see that? Listen. Not everything bad happens in your life is because God is punishing you. But the balance of that is that sometimes things are happening in your life because the Lord is getting your attention. We always have to guard our hearts. Solomon was a man whom God appeared to twice, and yet he couldn't escape the clutches of idolatry and his own selfish ambitions. Don't think that on your own strength you possess the power to do anything different. The children of God must live daily by the grace of God. And for those who do not belong to Christ, your only hope is that the wrath of God was poured out on that for your benefit. Because apart from the grace of God on the cross of Christ, you will not share His holiness you will not share his tabernacling presence. You will be banished away from him for eternity. While today is still called today, believe on the Lord for salvation. And so, Father, as we think about these things and as we are challenged by your word and reminded by Solomon's failures, help us, God, not to spurn your grace. God, help us not to Take lightly the fact, Lord, that you do give us the gospel. Help us, Lord, not to take the cross of Christ lightly, but, Lord, help us to understand that all of us deserve death, all of us deserve judgment, all of us deserve your wrath. But, Lord, your mercy has been displayed in a marvelous, gracious, and beautiful way of sending your own Son to take the wrath of God for those who believe on him. Father, help us to be grateful for these things. Lord, I pray that as believers, for those of us, Lord, who are in Christ, Lord, may the gospel continue to strengthen us, strengthen our faith and remind us of your goodness. And for those who are apart from you, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. May they cling to Christ, for in nothing else is there salvation. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior. Amen.